Good morning. Again, let me ask you to turn to Luke chapter 24. And we come this morning to verses 36 through 49. Luke 24, beginning at verse 36. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word, may the Holy Spirit who inspired Luke as he wrote, may the Spirit illuminate our minds and our hearts. We ask this for the glory of our Father in the name of the Son. Amen. Luke 24 and verse 36, as they were talking about these things, about all that has happened over the past few days, Jesus himself I love that. I love the way that Luke emphasizes Jesus himself. (laughs) Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they were still disbelieving for joy, it's a strange juxtaposition of words, isn't it? While they were, uh, I've lost my place, while they uh, were still, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took and ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's the threefold division of the Old Testament scriptures, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And now I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. It's quite a passage. You know, I've um, often found myself wondering about the world to come, you know, uh, trying to imagine, uh, seeing and living, uh, seeing Jesus and living in a world untouched by sin. (laughs) 
You know, but, but even as I wonder about those things, I know. I know that the reality will far exceed all that I can think or imagine. Well, I would imagine Jesus' followers are wondering about that day when they would be resurrected from the dead and they would stand before the Lord. That was part of Old Testament teaching, a coming day of resurrection, standing before the Lord. I'm confident they must have wondered what that day would be like. But here in Luke chapter 24, they are beginning to realize that the promise of a future resurrection is now a present reality. And the reality far exceeds all that they ever thought or imagined. I mean, they're coming to that point. I mean, some of their women insist the grave is empty and that they were told by angels that Jesus is risen from the dead. And, you know, now Peter tells them he's, he's seen Jesus risen from the dead. And, and, and now two from Emmaus have arrived and they report that they've talked with and been taught by Jesus and that as they sat at the table for the evening meal, he, as he broke the bread and he blessed it, suddenly disappeared from their sight. That's a little bit more than I could ask or imagine. So here, the followers of Jesus sit. They're wondering about these things. Now, in the other Gospels, we're given the detail that the room in which they are meeting is bolted shut. Doors are all locked. And as they sit there, wondering, discussing all of these things, suddenly Jesus, and as Luke emphasizes, Jesus himself, and as Jesus will say, it is I myself. Jesus suddenly is standing before them. And Luke tells us that they're startled should imagine so, and that they're afraid. It would be a little scary. I mean, you know, you know what it's like to turn around and find someone in the room that you didn't hear enter, and suddenly there they are. My wife blames me for doing that repeatedly, so, so no wonder. It's not strange to be told. They're, they're startled. They're, they're afraid. And Jesus, knowing, knowing their emotional response, knowing them, he lovingly says the first thing he says to them is shalom, peace to you. Be at peace. They find it hard to be at peace. They're trying, in their, 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 minds are, they're trying, their minds are racing. They're trying to figure out how Jesus got here. How did Jesus enter a locked room? The doors are all bolted shut. 
And again, I think it's perfectly understandable that their first thought is that Jesus must be a bodiless spirit. He must be a ghost. I mean, who else, what else? But a ghost could enter a room that was bolted shut. But he's not a bodiless spirit, not a ghost. He's flesh and blood. It is I myself. It's me. He stands before them physically because he is resurrected from the dead. Now, I've told you this before, and I think this is crucial for for us to understand that in the first century, this word resurrection had a very specific meaning. The word resurrection never referred to one returning from the dead as a bodiless spirit. The word resurrection always spoke of one returning from the dead in a physical body that would never again be touched by death or disease. Ever wondered about your resurrected body? (laughs) I'm going to be in my (laughs) mid-twenties. I'm going to be full of health and strength. I'm going to be free of all physical discomforts and mental worries. By God's grace, no longer make errors at shortstop. That last part is not true. Because that's not what it's going to be like. But I can assure you, since your resurrected body will be in many ways like Jesus' resurrected body, your resurrected body will be far more wonderful than anything you could possibly think or imagine. Anything. Jesus' resurrected body is, is fully human. He possesses a body free from the threat of disease or death. Well, that's wonderful enough, but of course... There are things, there are things about his resurrected body that that just are flabbergasting. I mean, they are. I mean, he's he's able to do things that stun us. I mean, such as suddenly disappearing as he breaks bread with the two in Emmaus, such as suddenly entering a room whose doors are bolted Shut. A believer, your renewed, resurrected physical body, I don't know if you'll be able to do all of that, but I assure you, it will be far more amazing than you can presently imagine. <laughs> now look at verses 38 through 43. Jesus, knowing that they're, he tell, that Luke tells us that they're troubled, that uh, Jesus' followers are troubled, that they're, they're filled with doubt, even troubled and filled with doubt about his sudden appearance and tending to think he must be a bodiless spirit. 
Jesus calls upon them to touch him. Give him a hug. He shows them his nail-scarred hands and feet. And knowing that they are still joyful and yet struggling to get a grip on all this, who can't understand that? They're still struggling. They're, they're, they're joyful, but they're, they're struggling to get a grip on all this. So, so Jesus does what no spirit would ever do. He tells them, I'm hungry. What do you got to eat? So they give him a piece of fish, and he eats it before them. And then he proceeds to do for them what he did for the two from Emmaus. Look at verse 44. He tells them, you remember what I told you. Well, every, as I've told you, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the three parts of the Old Testament, everything written about me must be fulfilled. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, Jesus tells them all of that, all of the Old Testament, it's about me. And that I have fulfilled what was written. The implication being clearly that I am the long-promised Messiah, the Christ, the Deliverer of whom the Old Testament speaks. Now, a great deal of my focus throughout the last 50 years has been on the Old Testament. I was, I, if you were to ask me what is your favorite book in the Bible, uh, I would probably say try to balance somewhere between Isaiah, Luke, and Hebrews. And I don't quite know how to separate those three. So I know, and you know, that Jesus' claim that all of the Old Testament is about me Sometimes we struggle with that. I mean, there are passages in the Old Testament that obviously speak directly about Jesus, about him being the descendant of Adam, of Abraham, of Judah, of David. Passages that speak of Jesus' virgin birth, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, his promised return. But we all know there are Old Testament passages where it's a little more challenging to appreciate just how they speak about Jesus. I mean, for example, just one example, and maybe for you this isn't an issue, but I think it is an issue for many evangelical Christians. For example, think about the Old Testament sacrifices, how strange they are. Have you read the book of Leviticus lately? How many of you have read the book of Leviticus in the last month? Wow. How many of you read the book of Leviticus in the last year? How many of you have ever read the book of Leviticus? How many of you have never? No, I'm not going to ask you that. Well, the Lord, the Lord gives his Old Testament people his law to teach them how to live. 
And he does so knowing that they will never keep perfectly his law. He knows they're going to transgress his commandments, that they're going to sin against him. And therefore, what does the Lord do in the giving of them that law? He graciously gives to them instructions about how to offer up bloody substitutionary sacrifices that will momentarily and symbolically cleanse them from their sin. But those sacrifices have to be repeated day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. Now, as you know, I hope you realize, those gracious sacrifices also require the substitutionary sacrifice that is offered must be free of physical defect. It must be as physically perfect as possible. Because all of that, all of that perfection, all of that shedding of blood, all of that offering up of sa- all of that anticipates the day when the final and perfect sacrifice for sin will be offered up to satisfy God's justice once and for all time. And, in one of my favorite books, in the book of Hebrews, I like all of Scripture. Okay, 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 okay. You know, so, but you do have favorites. So, in the book of Hebrews, what do you learn? You learn that all of those Old Testament sacrifices anticipate the coming of the sinless and final high priest who will offer up once and for all time, will offer up what? Will offer up his blood as the final sacrifice for sin. So that book of Leviticus, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now note, look at verse 45. Jesus now proceeds to tell them just exactly how it is that all of the Old Testament is about him. He proceeds to walk them through the Old Testament just as he did for the two in Emmaus, to walk them through the Old Testament, opening the eyes of their minds and their hearts to see how this is true, how it can possibly be that all of the Old Testament is about him. Now, how would you like to hear that Bible lesson? Well, at the south end of the main campus of Covenant College sits Sanderson Hall. Now, some of you are so so young and maybe some of you are so old you're forgetful. But I, don't, I, I imagine most of you have no idea who John Sanderson was. But I want to tell you, I was blessed by the Lord um, to sit at his feet as he taught and as he preached. He was powerful, clear, 
precise. What he said was applicable to the realities of my life. But Dr. Sanderson would be quick to tell you that sitting at his feet just pales into insignificance to the opportunity to sit at Jesus' feet. My friends, you may sit at Jesus' feet. You won't see him, not now, but you can hear him. For as you read the scriptures, God the Holy Spirit opens your ears, illuminates your minds, and stirs your hearts to hear what? To hear the very words of God. Now, I'm ashamed to confess the number of times I've been struggling to understand a passage of scripture as I'm preparing a sermon or a Bible lesson. Okay, what is, what's going on here? How do I preach this? How do I apply? Until finally it dawns on me, why don't you pray? Why don't you pray and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit? I encourage you. I encourage you to read the scriptures prayerfully, asking the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, eyes of your minds and hearts. I encourage you. You know, this may seem a little radical to some of you, but I really do. I encourage you to read scripture out loud. Not just read the words on the page. Read them out loud. And I encourage you to find two or three times a week, even if you faithfully have daily devotions, I encourage you to find two or three times a week when you can sit and read scripture for 30 minutes or longer. Why? Because always remember that while it may be helpful to read two or three verses at the beginning of a day, remember that individual verses can best be understood, are meant to be understood in the context of the surrounding verses and of the surrounding chapters. You've got to be careful about just reading a verse which may be subject to all kinds of interpretations. So, you know. Now, furthermore, let me add this. Always remember, always appreciate, always prayerfully remember that to assist you in understanding the scriptures, the Lord graciously gives you teachers and pastors who by the Holy Spirit's help, by God's grace, can help deepen your understanding of Scripture. So pray. Pray for those who teach and preach. Be praying for Pastor Lewis. 
In James chapter 3, verse 1, you're told that not many should become teachers, for those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Well, that's a little sobering. Your teachers, your pastor, they bear a great and fearsome responsibility before the Lord. So for their sake, for your sake, for the sake of God's glory, remember to pray for them. Now look at verses 46 through 48. Now Jesus tells his disciples, okay, you have witnessed. You have witnessed me fulfilling all that the scripture foretold. You've witnessed my life. You've heard my teaching. You saw me die. You know, you can see now that I'm risen again. So now, having witnessed all of these things, having been with me these past few years, now you are to serve as my witnesses to all nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, you now as my witnesses are to call upon others to repent of their rebellion against their creator and king so that they might know the joy of their sins forgiven. Now Jesus knows. Jesus knows that the task that he has just laid upon them, he knows it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Even the Apostle Paul recognizes just how overwhelming the task is. Who, who can do all this? Paul asks. So in verse 49, this is what Jesus does. He assures them that he will enable them to do as he instructs by sending the one the Father has promised to clothe them with power from on high. Now, in Luke's second volume, Book of Acts, and I encourage you, when you're trying to read through Scripture, read Acts, read, read Luke, and read Acts one after the other. I don't know why in our English Bibles the Gospel of John is placed between those. There's nothing inspired about the order of those books. But Luke wrote a two-volume work, the Gospel and the Book of Acts. And there is great profit in reading one after the other. In his second volume, it's some 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. It's some 10 days after our Lord's ascension, which we'll talk about next week. And God the Father and God the Son pour out upon them God the Holy Spirit to equip, enable, and empower them by their lives, words, and deeds to serve as Jesus' witnesses. Now, you know, you remember that some, just some, seven, just seven weeks early, just seven weeks, 
Just seven weeks earlier, Peter denied three times even knowing the Lord. That's just seven weeks ago. But now here in Acts chapter 2, it's Peter who stands in the streets of Jerusalem and boldly proclaims the gospel to an audience of thousands, telling them Jesus is the Lord. He is the Christ, the long-promised one. So what changed Peter? What changed Peter from a fearful denier of Christ into a bold preacher of the gospel? Well, obviously two things. One, in Luke 24, verse 45, Jesus opens his mind to understand and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the long-promised one, the one through whose life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign the salvific purposes of God have been fulfilled in the book of Luke, have been fulfilled in the book of Luke, and are now being fulfilled in the book of Acts. So that's the first. Secondly, the Father's promise, the Holy Spirit, is poured out upon him in Acts chapter 1, so that Peter, in the Lord's strength, now fearlessly bears witness about Jesus before others. And think about whom he's speaking to. And understand that, you know, while by God's grace, we're told that 3,000 responded in faith to his message, just remember there are thousands of others in that crowd who will prove hostile to Peter and to his Lord. So what about you? I know what you're sitting there thinking, oh boy, here it comes. Guilt trip number 45. So what about you? What about you? By grace through faith, you've embraced Jesus as your creator, savior, and Lord. That's by grace. Okay? Now understand, the grace that saves, that same grace enables you, equips you, empowers you. It's not two separate things. It's the same grace. The grace that saves is the grace that empowers. The Holy Spirit graciously opened the eyes of your minds in your hearts, that you might be saved. It's the same Holy Spirit who enables, equips, and empowers you to bear witness about Jesus before others through your life, words, and deeds. Now hear me. Because we don't all have the same gifts. So now, now hear me. Okay? And if you're fearful about being a witness for Christ, I'm really not trying to alleviate your fears. But I'm trying to encourage you at this point. You may never stand before thousands to speak. That may never happen. You may never stand before two, ten people to speak. 
That may not be the gift that God has given you. But before all of those whom you come in contact daily, your life, your words when the opportunity arise, your deeds of kindness can be used by the Lord to accomplish more than you can ask or imagine. To accomplish your life lived before others in obvious faithful submission to the Lord can have a far greater impact than you can possibly ask or imagine. Listen, my daddy, who I've told you is, is my hero, my daddy was an uneducated man, grew up in the Depression had to work on a farm when he was about 10, never got past the third grade. And even though he was a ruling elder, he never taught a class. Didn't teach a class of five, didn't teach a class of three. He never taught a class. He was a little concerned about his use of the English language, and I love him dearly, but he had great concern to be concerned about the use of his English, of the English language. Uh, he had been a uh, master sergeant in the army, so you can imagine perhaps some aspects of his language. So he never taught a class. But one-on-one, -on -one, and I could, bring in, I could bring in many who would testify to this. One-on-one, -on -one, he was a powerful witness and a master teacher. And the reason he had opportunity to be a powerful witness and a master teacher is because by God's grace, he lived a life that validated whatever he might say. I'm going to leave you with this amazing, sobering, and some of you may think over-the-top application. That's okay. I've been over-the-top before. Listen to me. You are this world's only hope. In his wisdom, the Lord chooses to build his church, to expand his kingdom by pouring out upon you the Holy Spirit, to equip, enable, and empower you to serve as his witnesses before others through how you live, through what you say, by what you do. The Lord, in his sovereign, in the fulfillment of his sovereign purposes, gives to you this task. And therefore, having given to you this task, you are this world's only hope.
not because of who you are, but because of who he is and because his plan is to work in and through you. So let me close with this. I assure you, upon the authority of God's word, that in and through you, he can accomplish more than you could ever ask or imagine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you, Lord, as we now prepare ourselves to come to this table. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy and your love, for your kindness to us. Thank you, Father, for this, for not just simply giving us this great responsibility, but promising us that you will equip, enable, and empower us to serve as your witnesses through the life we live, through the words we have opportunity to speak, through the deeds of kindness that we perform. In and through us, Father, Holy Spirit, Son, may Jesus be seen. And all God's people said,